Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. It only took 19 episodes, but today we are finally chatting about corals. Corals are some of my very favorite marine creatures, so I am so stoked to share this conversation with you. Today, we're speaking with Mariana Roca de Souza. Mariana is a coral biologist at the renowned Gates Lab in Hawaii. She didn't originally set out to study corals, however. Hailing from Brazil, Mariana grew up about an hour from the ocean, and her interest in the natural world was piqued by her biologist mother. After completing her undergrad in Brazil, Mariana moved to France to complete her master's degree, where she studied the golden medusa jellyfish. In this episode, we learn the art of reaching out, how traveling the world can shape your career, the secret life of Nadarians, and how you can help our oceans every day, no matter where you live. All the way from Hawaii, here's Mariana. Mariana, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm excited to be here, too. I'm going to start off with one of my favorite questions. What is your favorite sea creature and why? Hmm. My favorite sea creature? My favorite sea creature is a jellyfish. I think jellyfish are fascinating organisms. Um, They have a very interesting life cycle, but they're also very interesting for me. Like They're my favorite animal because it's also very connected to my career. So I started my career as marine biologist studying jellyfish. And then mm. later I transitioned to corals. That's what I study right now. But I started my career studying jellyfish. And I think they're fascinating. I even had the chance to go to Palau. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the jellyfish lake. There are millions of jellyfish in one single lake and you can actually swim with them. So I studied those jellyfish for my master's. Um, so yeah. I'm fascinated. That's awesome. <laughs> so you brought up a couple of things there that I want to unpack. Um, so you swam with jellyfish. When most people think of jellyfish, right, they think of mm-hmm. stinging and ow. <laughs> so there are jellyfish out there that don't sting. Yes. Um, actually, they all have these stinging cells. All jellyfish, mm-hmm. corals, all types of um, cnidarians, they have these stinging cells. So those stinging cells, um, if you touch them, they explode. They're going to inject a toxin, uh, and that's how they actually prey. So uh, jellyfish, they're going to catch these tiny animals and tiny plants in the water. They're called plankton. So to catch those animals, they use the nematocysts, the stinging cells. But some of these stinging cells are not strong enough for us to feel. So um, those jellyfish, for example, these ones in Palau, uh, they also have nematocytes, but you don't feel them. So you can swim with them uh, and you're not going to be stung. Okay. 
I actually saw a nematocyst fire under a microscope and it truly does look like a tiny little harpoon shooting out, yeah, which is really kind of crazy. I encourage people who <laughs> haven't seen it, Google. Look for some videos that are very cool videos in YouTube. Oh, okay. I'll have to find some and I'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> That's really fun. Very cool. So you grew up in Brazil and you love jellyfish. Are there a lot of jellyfish in Brazil? How did you how did you get involved oh, with jellyfish? There are many jellyfish in Brazil. They are actually, like not that many. Um, but I got interested because uh so I was in my undergrad in biology, and then I had to choose um an internship. And then for of all the options, I knew I wanted something related to the ocean. And then there was this lab that studied jellyfish. So it was more like a random thing, actually. It was not um, a decision because I particularly like a jellyfish. It was because <laughs> of um, yeah the lab that was available at the time. But then later, when I started studying them, I realized how fascinating they are. Yeah, they're super. It's funny how that yeah, works. Out. Actually, yes, that's true. So you always knew that you wanted to study the ocean. Did you? Was there an experience that kind of led you to that to make you make you decide in college I will study biology and I want to find a job doing something? So yeah, I'm from Brazil, and then my parents every summer. So we are from São Paulo. It's a very big city um, in Brazil, closest to the ocean, like one hour to the ocean. And every Mm -hmm. summer, my parents would take us. Like the whole summer, would stay by the beach. Um, and then like my mom as a biologist, she would show me like the tiny creatures in the intertidal, like lift all the rocks and then show me like the army crabs or any small thing we would find. And I love those things. Um, and then one day she, they actually took me to the Marine Institute of the University of Sao Paulo. And there was like a program, an outreach day for kids. And then I said, wow, I want to study here. So Glad to say that I, yeah, many years later, I came back to the Institute as a student. Yeah. But I think it really highlights to me, like the importance of outreach, like even what you, you are doing right now with the podcast, like, yeah, like this showing that science is, is possible. Science is for everyone. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, like this really highlights the importance of outreach. Like this thing that I went when I was a kid. I came back many years later, actually, to study, to get my degree in there. Very cool. So you you got a degree in biology, and were you able to find a job right away, or did you know that you wanted to pursue a graduate degree and just kind of kept rolling with so, that? So, yeah. So um, I studied, I got my undergraduate degree in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. But even before that, mm-hmm. like, when you ask if I always wanted to be a biologist, I did, but there was a, ro- a lot of resistance from family, from friends. I think um, so. Biology is not a very pristine career in Brazil. Like my family wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor. You know, like all these professions that are, yeah, more pristine. You get more money. It seems more stable. Um, and I even like went to some universities, like visit some institutes, like went to the med school, attended a class to see if it was my thing. And it was my, not my thing. Um, so there, there was, some- <laughs> you know, you tried. I tried, I tried <laughs> law. I had no, I didn't even try, but like medicine, well, maybe it's related <laughs> to science. I like science, but, um, yeah, 
and then I think even here, like I hear from some students, so I teach at university and I, and I hear from some students like, well, my parents, they are, yeah, like a little resistant to this. Um, so I think it, it still happens even here, right? Like it's not a profession that people mm-hmm. think like a lot. And then there's a lot of this, people don't know what to do after, like what are the opportunities for marine biologists? Like what can you actually do with this? So, okay, coming back to your question, this was all like side. Yeah, after others resistance said, no, I actually want to study biology. So in Brazil, you don't specialize in marine biology. There's no degree in marine biology. So uh, I got a degree in biology, but then took some classes uh, on marine biology, other ones that are actually available at institute, I did. And then I joined a lab. So I think that's something I really recommend to people. Um, to join in la- any lab, to be an intern as soon as you can. I think that's a great opportunity to meet people, um, get experience, try different things. Like you don't have to know what you want right away. That's what I did. I didn't know I wanted jellyfish, but I kind of tried and then it worked it out. Later it changed, but it's fine. I think uh, it's very important to experience things, to try new things and then see what actually, what actually want you to, what actually, you want to do, right? Um, so I joined this lab uh, at the university um, and then I started working with jellyfish over there. And then later got my master's and then many other things happened. So after I started doing research, I wanted, I knew I wanted to continue doing research. It's a true love of science. Yeah. So I want to back up for one second before we get into your grad, because I, I we're going to go down the rabbit hole and I'm really excited for it. But I didn't realize that your mom was a biologist. Did she? What did she study? So she got her degree and then she was a teacher. So I always thought she never did science, but she loved biology. So I think she really inspired me because she would show like things that people wouldn't actually care, you know, like these tiny animals or like show, take a fern and explain me the parts of the ferns and things like this. They're like, if you're not a biologist, you usually don't care about those things. Um, right. right. <laughs> so I think-, I think that's one of I think that's one of the cool things about biology and science in general is that um, I and a, a, there's a quote about this somewhere and I'm totally going to butcher it. But the essence of it is that you don't ever have to grow up because as a kid, we always ask yeah. why, like why this? What is that? And then as scientists, you also ask yeah. why. Yeah, exactly. yeah. You look at nature in a different way. You appreciate nature in a different way. Okay, so you mm-hmm. graduate with your undergrad. You know you want to pursue your your graduate degree. How do you even go about applying to different programs? Because you mentioned in Brazil, there really isn't a marine biology program, right? So you're like looking everywhere. That's a very good point. So um, if you're an undergrad, if you wanna, and then you want to go into grad school. Uh, so I think we start first deciding like where which institution do you want to go like do you want to stay in the place where you are if you do maybe talk to the labs like know the professors and the the labs that you would be interested in doing research with so i think that's the first thing like doing some research from your part uh what are the labs what are the research topics that would be interested in studying and then after you decide which research topic you're interested in finding professors that work with that topic and then contacting those professors. So, and then if you find those professors at your institution, great. Uh, try to plan a time to meet with them. 
so that they can know you and then discuss how you can actually apply and discuss funding um, and so forth. And then if you realize there is no professor at your institution, you do a similar thing. You reach out to those professors, you email, uh, and then you actually have to find out about how to apply to a different institution or to a different country. Um, so usually you have all the information probably in the website, um, but it's a little bit of digging. You have to first decide which area of research you want to go, the institution, uh, find a lab, and then do some digging from your part about, yeah, like how how does the application work? For you, you kind of already had it panned out that you found a jellyfish lab in, during your undergrad, correct? So you knew that you really like jellyfish. And is that what you decided to focus on when you were looking for grad school? Kind of. Um, so I would, <laughs> it was not as straightforward. So I knew I wanted to give never jellyfish, <laughs> but I decided to go abroad. So I, as I said, I'm from Brazil uh, and I got my undergrad in Brazil, but I wanted to try something mm-hmm. abroad. So for this, I needed to have the language and I needed to contact the institutes in the other countries to ask about, yeah, like what's the process for the application, contact professors and mainly funding. I needed to get funding because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not from a wealthy family. My mom is a biologist. My dad was retired. So if I wanted to do something like this, I have to get my own funding. So uh, I contacted many mm-hmm. institutions in Europe and I always like a language. So like I, I could speak Italian and French and English and English. So I contacted some institutions, uh, did a lot of applications. So that's like, that usually takes a long time, like applying to different places, uh, translations and everything. And then finally got admitted in three or four institutes in Europe. But then my final decision came because of funding <laughs> that was an important factor where I could get actually get funding to go mm-hmm. um, and also I contacted some professors in the field and asked for advice like which insti- institution they would recommend if I wanted to keep studying this specific thing like if they had any recommendation that they could give and for this I would say like I don't even know these people that I contacted I just found them online and reach it out and ask it for advice. And I think that's something that everybody can do. I think like people in this field, like marine biologists, usually you love what you do, right? Like I love what I do. And I, I have, I received many emails from different people, from students, uh, from high school students, from undergrads that are kind of in the same situation that I was like, Oh, I want to apply. I don't know where to go. Like, can you give me any tip or how do I get scholarships? I want to study abroad or these kind of things. So I think don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, people usually respond. People can be busy. So sometimes it gets like some emails gets, get forgotten. But uh, usually people are very uh, responsive mm-hmm. and people want to help other people to get there just the same way they did. So uh, I reached out to some professors and some of them responded me giving some tips on how to apply, like how to get scholarships, and then it eventually worked it out. So I I went to France, to Marseille, in the south of France, to get my master's. Yes, in oceanography, actually. Mm-hmm. It was not in marine biology. It was in oceanography. Still really in the ocean. ocean. Yes. <laughs> and the awesome. master in Europe is quite different. So, like, I didn't have research right away. So, um 
in this case, I didn't have to research the lab because it's, it's a very different, um, very different masters actually compared to the American, American one. Uh, in Europe, you don't use your research right away. You have many classes. And then in the last year of the master's, then you decide your lab. So it's just a different method. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I kind of like that because as in your undergrad, you can kind of find things that you do and don't like and whittle it down that way. It's it's difficult to kind of pigeonhole yourself into one thesis, which is usually what a master's requires one you study one thing yeah. and then now you're you're almost like stuck in it right like if you get a year yeah. in and decide you don't like it you have to start over almost so <laughs> i think there are pros and cons for both for both systems um that are for sure pros and cons uh but that can be yes something positive the fact that you have some time to think some time to know the professor and then you actually decide on the other hand uh you don't have a lot of time for research you have much less research experience than someone who actually does the master in US. Yeah. So there are pros and cons, pros and cons. Yeah. Interesting point. So what did you end up studying for your master's? So, yeah. So um, I had all these classes in France, and then I had to decide which lab I would do my internship on. Mm-hmm. And then I contacted some professors Again, don't be afraid to reach out to people. Uh, and I reached out to one professor that I met in a conference, actually, about jellyfish, a conference that I attended. And we kept in touch. I kept, like, emailing him, saying, like, hey, don't forget me. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I have to put in my master's, you know, like, just kind of keeping him. I wanted him to remember me. It, yeah. So I contacted him and asked for advice. That's an excellent point, whether you're looking for a professor to work on, to study under or a job or anybody that like uh, welcomes your communication, you should still keep in contact with them. So actually I met him, yeah, in a conference that I went to when I was an undergrad. Uh, that was a great experience for me. I got to present at an international conference and then I met like two or three professors that, yeah, I tried to keep in touch the most that I could throughout my whole career, actually. And I just met them at this particular conference. So you never know the context that you make, how far they're going to help you in your career. This one's helping me a lot. Yes. Um, anyways, so I had to decide which lab I would go for my internship. And then I contacted this professor, asked him if he had some advice. And he suggested me a professor in California. So I was in France, but he suggested me this person from California. Um, and then I contacted this person and then got some funding from the university in France and then went to California to do my research project on jellyfish. Interesting. So you're still technically a student at your school in France, but but then you're in California doing your research. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense. How long were you in California for an actual year or something? No, no, I was there for four months. Okay. Four months. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what were you studying? So I was studying Mastigias Papua. Uh, that's the jellyfish that you find in Palau, like the jellyfish lake, where you have mm-hmm. millions of jellyfish. Uh, and the jellyfish, they don't sink much. We just talked about it. This lake is unreal. Like if people haven't seen photos, I'll put some photos in the show notes or links to photos in the show notes. It's completely, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like 
just I literally yeah. you're swimming through millions of jellyfishes, like little blobs of golden orbs. And the photos are incredible. And it's on my list to get to. <laughs> it's super beautiful. It's like swimming in a swimming pool of jellies, like just jelly everywhere, like jelly everywhere. Um, so I was studying Masijas Papua and then these temples had been collecting Masijas uh, in, in Palau and brought back to California. So I was studying, doing all my study on dead jellies because it was just for months, right? Like I didn't have time to go there. So, mm-hmm. but I was studying the morphology of the jellies, like comparing the morphology and the genetics. Um, so comparing the... Okay, so morphology is like the body, the body type and the genetics. Are like, like what you see and then comparing that to the genetics and then trying to find differences so we actually found um three more species of this specific uh, jellyfish yeah so we're able to compare both the outside the morphology and the genetics and then show that there were it is not just the species that we call Matajas papua there are actually more species in that specific location and that hadn't been discovered before no, that had not been discovered before. So That's we found incredible. more species. Yeah. But then, uh, so I finished my master. I came back to France, defended, fine. And then I came back to California to work with the same professor uh, for one year, two years, actually, two years I was there. And then this time I got to go to Palau. Then this time, yes, I got to go to the lake, actually sample the jellyfishes and then see, yeah, this million of jellyfish in this lake, which is amazing. What a cool yeah. and special experience. I feel like <laughs> you not going immediately, like you studying the animals and writing, you know, writing your paper mm-hmm. on it and yeah. like almost prolonging it, like made it that much better, right? Like if you yeah. had just flown to California and they're like, next week, we're going to go to Palau, let's go. Like you would have appreciated it, but maybe not quite as much. So it's kind of cool how that totally panned out. I totally agree. Yeah, there was this anticipation. Like I had studied the animal for two years and a half. And I wanted to, yeah, so finally see the animal alive. Yes. That's incredible. Very cool. So you decided after you got your master's, that was, that's it. Say two, you're just going to get it. You wanted to get a job, right? I wanted to get a PhD. I wanted to continue. You still, oh, you knew you wanted to get a PhD. You knew you wanted to go all the way. Yes. I wanted to get a PhD. So I finished my master's. I came back to Brazil and then, yeah. Do I want to get a PhD? Where do I want to get a PhD? Should I apply in Brazil? Should I apply somewhere else? Um, and then actually there was an opportunity to apply for a scholarship um, to study in US. It was a Brazilian scholarship. And then I was awarded. And then I came to Hawaii to get from a PhD. And then changed my topics um, because during this time that I was studying Mastigas Papua, I became very, very interested in the algae symbiont that lives inside the jellyfish. Mm -hmm. So jellyfish, they usually prey, right? Like they have the nematocytes. We just talked about them, like the stinging cells. Um, So jellyfish, they usually prey. They eat tiny things in the water. But these jellyfish, Masijas Papua, they have a microscopic algae that lives inside them and photosynthesizes. Mm -hmm. And then the 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 algae is going to share the product of photosynthesis with the jellyfish. And then the jellyfish provides protection for the algae. So it's a symbiotic interaction. And then in Palau, it's so beautiful. You can actually see like the jellyfish, they move with the sun because of the microscopic algae. You see walls of jellies 
just between shade and sun because they want the algae to photosynthesize and provide them more food. So I became very, very interested in this symbiotic interaction, which I think is super, super fascinating. Mm -hmm. Like one animal living inside the other and depending so much on each other. Um, so I became super interested in this. And then when I decided what to study for my PhD, I decided to study corals because most of the interaction of this algae and the animal has been done on corals. So corals have interaction with the same microscopic algae. It's called Symbiogeniaceae. It's a complicated name. That's the family, Symbiogeniaceae. So corals, they, have, they also have interaction with this microscopic algae. Uh, and most of the studies on this have been done on corals. So then I decided to change a little bit my career and leave the jellyfish to the side and actually transition to corals. Uh, and then just like the same process, like how do you apply for a PhD? Similar process to a master's. You contact different people, you do some search about the labs, what are the research topics, and then contact professors that you think you would be interested in working with and then see if they would be interested in taking you in their labs. So um, Ruth Gates, um, she, re she replied to one of my emails and then we Skyped and she invited me to, to join her lab. And then that's why I ended up in Hawaii. Wonderful. I, I want to talk a little bit about your lab, but I do want to back up for one minute. <clears throat> so when I was researching you, I did find that information about the symbiotic algae, which in corals is called zooxanthellae. And I did not realize that jellies and anemones and even clams have this. Yes. It blew my mind. Yes. <laughs> I feel like so I, like you hear about it in corals all the time. Like this is coral mm -hmm. bleaching. This is what happens. And we can talk more about that in a second. But I, it just totally blew my mind that it was in, in other creatures. And is it always called zooxanthellae or they're just different, are there different species? Yeah. Yeah. So zooxanthellae is just a popular name. Mm -hmm. So kind of group all the this microscopic algae that, that um, is in symbiotic interaction with the coral. We call all this zooxanthellae, but there are different species. Um, actually, a paper last year just classified into eight different species. Um, I'm going to confirm that. <laughs> but like the taxonomy okay. of the group is very confusing. For all these years, it has been very confusing. Taxonomy is just how we name things in science. So uh, mm -hmm. the naming the naming of different species has been always very confusing. But last year, they were it seems that they were able to call this like a big family. So instead of calling species, they have right now it's like symbiogeniaceae. It's a big family and then some species inside the family. But yeah, like it's very interesting because most people just hear about zooxanthellae inside the corals. And then people don't realize it's actually in many other different animals. So as I said, in clams, uh, in class, in anemones, in jellyfishes, and actually even more. Like So um, it can be in the water column. It can be in the sediment. It can be in the surface of algae. It can be like there is a whole meta-community of zooxanthellae on a reef. It's not just inside the coral. It can be shifting different animals in different locations in the same environment. That's yeah. amazing. I did not realize that. I thought it lived in the coral and that was it. So thank you for that education. That's incredible. Um, so before we get more into 
more into the reef, before we dive more mm-hmm. into the reef, could you please explain kind of the history and of uh, the Ruth Gates, the Gates Lab, and where you're working, and kind of, and why it's so sure. important? Sure. Uh, so Ruth, Ruth was a an amazing marine biologist. Like she was one of the top coral biologists uh, for many years. She was the president of the Coral Reef Society. Um, and she was very, very engaged in outreach and education. Like it, it was her passion. Um, she would spend many days like bringing reporters to the lab or like traveling to many places to talk to um, to people in government or doing documentaries about corals. She really wanted to people to know about corals and what is happening to corals. So she was a very, very big advocate for coral reefs. Um, she was also the president of the Institute, the Hawaiian Institute of Marine Biology, where we had a lab. Um, and last year, unfortunately, um, she was diagnosed with cancer and she passed exactly one year today. So, and she leaves yes. behind this lab and this legacy. And you were mentioning before we hopped on that there's actually a documentary about her lab that that it's her voice. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Ruth was very, like, she really valued outreach and she really valued uh, putting the word out there. I think like we do a lot of work in the lab and many scientists do amazing work, but many times the work that we do just stays inside the lab. And she really valued like, we have to, the world has to know what we are doing. Otherwise, people are not going to care. If we care about coral reefs and we want people to care about it too, people need to understand what it is. People, people need to know. People need to see. So she valued like having this uh, documentaries, like people come and recording our research because people only care what they actually see, right? Like, so there are two documentaries that she was part of that are amazing. So one is Chasing Coral. It's on Netflix. I recommend mm-hmm. everybody to go and see it. I love it. That's that's one of the that's one yeah. of my favorites, and I recommend it to everybody. And that's the first time yeah. I heard of Ruth Gates, so that's awesome. And then what's the second recommendation? And then there is another one that has just been released today, like just today. So we we're, we're waiting for the anniversary of one year to release this, um, and it's her narrating throughout the whole documentary. Mm. So it's amazing. And it's called Lost Cities. Lost Cities. I will yeah. put a link, like I said earlier, to this and everything that we chat about in the show notes for anybody. Yeah. That's really special. Thank you for highlighting the importance of the lab and kind of the research that you guys are doing. Let's dive back into your research. So you study the symbiotic communities. What are you, yes. what are you specifically looking for and what are you finding? First, have you guys heard of coral bleaching? I think most people have, but if not, can we, can you give a, a Campbell soup quick, quick version of what coral bleaching is and what it means? So all corals, they have interaction with this microscopic algae, right? Like, and then this algae photosynthesizes. And then when it photosynthesizes, it shares about 90% of the food that comes from the coral comes from the symbiotic interaction from the algae. So, sorry, it was very confusing the way I said uh, I'm gonna try it again. So there's uh, there's a there's an algae that lives inside of the corals, and the symbiotic relationships help both of them thrive. And the mo- and the coral gets most of its nutrients w- from this 
from this interaction. Exactly. So about 90% of the energy of the coral, of the food coral, comes from the products of the photosynthesis of the algae. There you go. Perfect. Better. <laughs> uh, but when the temperature of the water increases, uh, the coral expels the algae. So when the temperature of the water increases, the coral loses the main source of food So because it lost the algae. And also loses the color because the algae was one of the main things that provided the color to the coral. So that's what we call bleaching. Bleaching, it means the coral got rid of the algae and it's actually fasting. It's hungry. It lost the main source of food, um, but it's still alive. But it expelled the algae because it's stressed. It does just exactly. Just expelled the algae because it's stressed. It's still alive, but it lost the main source of energy. I study this algae that was expelled, and it's going to be present in the water, in the sediment, and in different compartments on the reef. So I'm very interested in where can this algae be so that corals, if the conditions come back to normal, corals can acquire this algae back. So uh, I collect a lot of water, sediment, uh, coral, um, to see where in these compartments, we can find the different types of algae. That's one of the projects that I do. Uh, another project, uh, I have been looking at the algae symbionts, like the zooxanthellae, um, in different corals in the bay. So we have 600 corals that we, ha- we are monitoring in the bay. And uh, we want to know if this algae is changing according to the different environmental conditions in the bay. So right now, for example, we're experiencing a bleaching event. So there is a big bleaching event happening in Hawaii just right now. Uh, It's just getting better right now because the temperature is starting to decrease, but we still see a lot of bleaching. So we want to see how this algae symbiont has been changing throughout this time. So we have samples collected, coral samples collected before the bleaching, and we're going to have samples collected after the bleaching. And we also have a lot of data um, for different corals and for the coral reefs around. So we're collecting um, data on the water quality, on temperature, on sedimentation. And we're doing a lot of um, surveys. We call this photo mosaic. So we come in with a picture. It's like, sorry, with a camera. And we take about more than one million pictures in one single reef, just like swimming in circles. And then later we're able to put this online uh, in the computer and then do a model, do like a model with the whole reef that we saw. And we're actually able to get a lot of information out of this, like about the structure of the coral, about the, um, the communities that are just in between the coral that you can actually see because the picture has very high resolution. Um, you can also get information about the color, the structure, and yeah, just like the health of the reef that you're looking at. So it's like a big project. There are a lot of people involved. Um, so we ha- we're going to have information about yeah the quality of the water, the symbiont in the coral, the genetic of the coral, and also like how healthy each reef is. Incredible. That's a huge undertaking. Yeah. Is there somewhere that that yeah. the public can go and kind of keep tabs on this? Or is this kind of being collected in a private database and will be released at a later date? 
No, yes, yes. That is actually, there is a website for bleaching. So we just created a website to talk about the bleaching event that's going on in Caneo Hebe, because that's where we work on, um, and talking specifically about this big project. Uh, so we have a website. I can send you the link, and then you can also advertise for everybody that's interested. Yes, again, link will be in the show notes. You, okay, you've got a lot going on, and I had a lot. I got a lot of questions for you now. Um, so, can corals reassimilate as soon as they've, or after they've expelled the zooxanthellae, after they've expelled this symbiotic algae? If conditions c- come back to normal, come back to optimal, will they reassimilate? Yes. Yes. Corals can reassimilate, yes, but it really depends on um, how long it takes for the water to come back to the normal temperature, right? Like, so corals, they, if, when they lose the algae, they are hungry. They lost the main source of food. They are still alive and they can keep staying alive. They can hold in there, just surviving, not eating, just surviving for a short period of time. So it depends on how long it takes for the conditions to come back to normal. Um, there is also a very interesting thing that I didn't mention before, that there are different types of algae. As I said, there are different species of algae. And some actually are more resilient to climate change. They're more resilient to the heat stress. So if the corals have this algae that are already more resilient to the high temperature, they can also become more resilient. So the same species of coral, like Acropora is probably the most common that I like see. Um, it, it could have two different types, two different species of zooxanthellae in it. And one is more resistant than others. That's incredible. Yes. So it's very species specific. So the type of algae they have depend on the species of the coral. It's not that all species of corals can have all the same species of algae. It really depends on the species. So some species are going to have just two types. Some other species can have more, like a higher variability. It really depends. Uh, But what is interesting is some algae are more resilient and can provide resilience for the corals. So that's why it's important to do this study about like trying to understand um, the algae inside the coral. So like this can help us understand who are the strong corals? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's very interesting for now. Right now, for example, when we have the bleaching, you swim in Kanyo Hebe or any other place in Hawaii where we're having bleaching, and you can see side by side coral colonies that are completely different. They are the same species, and one is bleached, one is white, one is healthy. So, the big question is why? Why do we see side by side like corals of the same species exposed to the same environment, but are, they are responding in such a different way? Like, why is one colony stronger than the other? So that's the big question that a lot of coral biologists have been trying to answer. Like, so is it more, is it stronger because it has the algae that's making it more like more resilient? Or is it stronger because it has some genetic component that's making it more resilient? So, or is it a, or maybe it's a combination of both, or maybe it's something else entirely. Uh, Maybe it's the bacteria. Maybe they have different bacteria composition that are making it more resilient. So, um, corals are very, very complex. They seem very simple. They seem like a rock. Some people think they're rocks. They are not rocks. They are an animal, not just that, but they're a very, very complex animal. 
um, because there is all these layers, right? Like you have the bacteria, you have the algae, you have like the multiple polyps. So corals are formed by many polyps, like tiny anemones that live together and form this big animal. Um, so you have this other layer of the polyps. Um, it's just like a lot of things together, right? Like what's actually, like what's, what is the most important factor for corals to, um, to, re- to be resilient to any stressor? Amazing. They're such amazing creatures. I've always been fascinated by corals, so I'm totally geeking out right now. You paint like a really lovely picture of being like, you get to go out with a camera and some water bottles and go dive in Hawaii, right? Beautiful, clear water, ideally, most of the time, probably, (laughs) and collect samples. Could you walk through what your day-to-day is like, usually? And you can include like a field day or not so field day, right? So what's what's like a typical day in your life as a coral researcher? That's a very good question. Uh, I think many people that want to go into marine biologist, they want to go into this field because they love the ocean, right? Like they love to be Mm -hmm. outside, they love to dive. Um, But not all the days are going to be like that. (laughs) So um, I do have many field days. So it depends on which project I'm doing, actually. So let's see. If I'm doing the photo mosaic, so we're trying to collect data for this big project that I just described. So we're going to carry the camera. We're going to have sensors for temperature, for pH. Uh, We're going to have some water bottles to collect water. Uh, So we have to prepare a lot of things, like label some things, um, reserve the boat in advance, check that we have gas, check that we have everything ready in the boat, get like the lifeguard, um, the life jackets, the flag, the first aid kit, snorkel gear, have everything ready and then jump on the boat. Uh, And then with the GPS, we drive the boat to specific sites because we are monitoring specific sites on the bay. So we want to come back exactly to the same location. So we get on the boat, we check that everything's there. Um, and then we drive the boat to a specific site. When we get there, uh, we can or anchor or just if someone is on the boat can just be lifeboating the whole time while other people get in the water and do their research. Once it's done, we come back on the boat, come back to the lab, and then there is all the processing to do, right? Like with the photos, uh, you have to download the pictures and then make the models with the water filtering and then preserving the filter so that it can extract the DNA from the filters later. Uh, the sensors, you also have to import the data. So a lot of a lot of other lab work after the the field work component. But many days of a marine biologist's life is also going to be in the lab. So it de- really depends on whatever project you're going to be doing. But I think it's important to know that you're not always going to be in the water. There will be a lot of time analyzing data um, or, in my case, doing a lot of molecular work because I work with the algae and the algae is microscopic. Um, everything I have to do is through the DNA of the algae. So the algae cannot be identified just by looking at it this in the microscope. If I want to identify which type of algae it is, I have to get the DNA first. And then there's a whole recipe, a whole protocol 
that I have to do to get DNA and then check that it's good DNA and then do a lot of a series of other processes to identify like all the bases in the DNA and then to compare that to find out which type of algae it is. So in summary, um, it's a combination of lab days, computer days, and field days. Excellent. Yeah. I, and I think that encompasses a lot of marine biology degrees or, or jobs if there is a field component. And there isn't always a field component, but you sounds like have like the ideal field component. Do you use scuba to collect your samples to, to take your photos and everything, correct? Uh, it depends. So some of the sites are very shallow. So if they're shallow, we just snorkel. Some of the sites are deeper and then we scuba. When did when did you get certified? Uh, so I got certified. My, my first certification was in Brazil when I was an undergrad. Actually, my dad gave me as a gift um, some money to get my driver license because in Brazil it's different. So here you don't need to do a class, right, to get a driver license. You have to take a class to get your permit and then you drive with your parent for a year and then you take a test and that's it. Oh, okay. So in Brazil, you do like a six months class and it's a, actually a very expensive course. Like the six months are quite expensive. Uh, and then after that, you pass, you have to do the test to get a driver license. So when I, when I was about to finish my degree, my biology degree, my dad gave me as a gift the money to go and get my driver license. And I got the money and I did my first dive certification. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Dad, I have a better use for this. <laughs> so I didn't learn how to drive until I was in California. Oh, that is so funny. What did your dad say when you came home and you're like, I'm certified? And he's like, great, let me see your license. And you show him like a diving certification. <laughs> he, he was okay. Yeah, he knew that I have always wanted to do that. So <laughs> he's a good sport. But I too cannot drive in Brazil. So that's something I still have to do. If I come back, I'll have to do those classes and then get my certification. Yeah. So you mentioned that was your first certification. Did you end up getting more? Yes. Uh, and then when I was in California for those two years working with jellyfish, so just before we went to Palau, uh, I did a scientific dive certification because because I was going to Palau to dive as part of this research project, uh, I needed to be scientific certified. So it's a, a different certification that university do. Um, so you can be part, you can dive for research projects. So I did that in Berkeley, in UC Berkeley. Uh, and then got to dive a lot in Palau. We dove like in many, many marine lakes, which was amazing. Um, and then when I came back here to Hawaii, uh, I just had to transfer because I already had the scientific uh, dive. I just had to transfer my certification. So it's it's really funny. You were walking walking us through like a typical day earlier and all the gear that you have to get ready. And I recently had somebody email me and they're like, so if you have to get ready for a day in the field what do you do? And I had a really short response for him. And it was just make a list, check it 10 times. Yeah. That's and have backups and have backups. Many things just like, Oh, sometimes we go and then we bring just one GPS and then the GPS stops working. And it's like, no, we're in the middle of the way and we cannot go anywhere. So having a second GPS, having a second camera in case the battery dies, having like, yeah, just second everything. 
I heard I heard a quote two is one and one is none meaning like if you have two of something that means you have equivalent of one and if you only have one if that thing dies you have nothing so always bring it back up exactly I think it's great I have a couple more things this has gone by really fast I really enjoyed talking to you I have a couple mm -hmm. more things as we kind of wrap up one of my other favorite questions to ask is what is your favorite field story or stories to tell and this can be the best day ever the most perfect day everything went right and you saw the most amazing things or kind of like everything went wrong and it's now an excellent story to tell now but at the time it wasn't that much fun I think both are great learning experiences, though. Oh, I have both. I have both. I'm going to tell both then. All right. <laughs> I love it. Let's hear the, the bad story. I mean, okay. Right now, it's not that bad. As you said, when we remember this story, it's a funny story. But at the time, it didn't sound that funny. Uh, <laughs> so it was in Palau. And so we were diving in the marine lake. So Palau has a lot of marine lakes. So it's salt water uh, that got enclosed in these um, mountains. So, so it's it's a lake in between many mountains. You have these islands and just like the these lakes in between. So we would take the boat and then drive to these islands and then dive in the islands. We're doing a survey of the Bantic community. Bantic is just like anything that's in the sand is in the substrate. So we're collecting algae like crabs or anything that we would find in the bottom. Um, and then for one of the lakes, so the lake is called. Crocodile Lake, big crocodile. Yes, and oh. the local people told us, yeah, told us, oh, oh we no. have been seeing this big crocodile over there. Like, maybe you guys shouldn't go. Like, I don't recommend you guys going there because we have been seeing these crocodiles. So we freak it out. We freak it out. <laughs> it's saltwater crocodile. They are aggressive, uh, and we are very far. We're in the middle of nowhere. It's not that if some accident happened. You have to walk back the island. So just backing up how how this field work happens. So we get the boat. We drive sometimes one hour to get to this island. Uh, and then you have to walk to the top and then walk back. Just like imagine like if you draw an island, like, you know, like how kids, we draw an island, just like a mountain top. Mm -hmm. So that's how the island are. So you stop the boat on one side. You have to walk to the top and walk back. And then you have the lake. So we would have to do all of that with the gear, with the dive gear. So super heavy in the middle of the forest, mosquitoes, um, poison, uh, poison trees. There are a lot of poison trees and it rains all the time. So you have to be completely covered. It's very hot. So the poison trees, if it rains and it drips on you, it will, it will affect you? Exactly. So that's why we have to be completely covered, even though oh it's very, very hot and humid. You never know which which one is a poison tree and you never know like if it's going to rain and then something is going to fall on you. So you have to be completely covered from head to toe and carry your dive gear. So <laughs> you walk for like 40 minutes and time one hour um, in the jungle. So it's not a, people are not allowed to go to those places. So it's not a hike, right? Like it's in, it's a forest it's jungle, <laughs> and you kind of have to make your way through. You're making uh, your own trail. There's no footpath. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You make your own trail. So it was super tiring. I lost a lot of weight. Like after <laughs> two months, I lost a lot of weight because it was very physically like exhausting. So we have to go up and then go down and then start the work and then dive. So uh, if an accident happened, 
come on, <laughs> you, you, just the time you have to get there, like walk out the island again, like walk up, walk down, get the boat and drive to the hospital. I think it would be that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so we freak it out. We freak it out. And then we made our plan. I was like, okay, if a crocodile gets us, um, how are you going to do? Because many times we couldn't see each other because the water would be so murky. So we dive as pairs, as buddies, but each one of us is collecting our own data uh, for the project and we're not touching. We're not that close. And because the water is so murky, many times you can't actually see each other. So it's like, oh my God, if something happened, how can we tell each other? So we, may, we came up with a plan. We would have something to make noise in the tank. So okay. if something happened, we would have to knock in the tank <laughs> <laughs> and then just tell the other person and then people would try to come and find us in the dark like in the murky lake and we also we also had knives each one of us had a knife but like all these plants is it's so ridiculous right because if something actually happens i don't think you i don't know if you would have the time to think about making the noise and like getting the knife i don't know but we made a plan and we had our <laughs> Uh, on the day we were freaking out we were very very scared we actually saw marks on the trail like something big had walking over there like the the grass was open you know so something very mm -hmm. big had walking there and the only thing it could be is a crocodile there's nothing else that's that big over there so for sure there was a crocodile nearby but thanks god we didn't see anything <laughs> but it was a very very <laughs> Stressful day, or we were stressed the whole day, but nothing happened. Nothing happened. <laughs> Sometimes it's just the stories we build in our head. <laughs> it was there. It was there. We saw the marks, but right, it was just scared, or maybe it was just watching us, but you didn't do anything. Just probably freaking but... you and all of your dive equipment. But I agree. I would. I probably would have been freaking out as well. <laughs> we freaked out. Uh, but like a good day. Uh, so as a marine biologist, like I think one of the things that I love most about my job is like that we can travel a lot and go to amazing places because I study corals. So like I get to go to many tropical places and just dive in amazing locations. So um, I got to go. So yeah, like in Palau, for example, I got to go when I was working in California. Um, and then here, as part of Gates Lab, I went to Morea in French Polynesia last oh year, five years amazing. ago, which was amazing. And just this year, actually, we went to Australia uh, and we got to dive at the Great Barrier Reef. And that yeah. was like a big dream for me, it has always been a big dream for me. Mm -hmm. So that was amazing. That was one of the best days, right? Like just going down and then all this diversity of coral, all the different colors and shapes and just mountains of corals, like in huge, huge, like the size of a house, just, yeah, blew my mind. Like it was amazing. Yeah. Just oh, that's beautiful. so incredible. Great beer reefs on my list as well. That's amazing that you got to go. Super yeah. special. Well, those were excellent stories. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. <laughs> what advice would you give somebody that wants to be a marine biologist? My advice is reach out to people, try networking. So um, 
if you're an undergrad, start volunteering in a lab. And then with that, you start knowing the things that you are interested in, but also you start being known by people. So if you're working with a professor, this professor is going to know you and is going to maybe recommend you to other people. It's going to open doors for you. Or if you happen to know a marine biologist, I don't know, a neighbor or someone, just ask this person, what are the doors? How can we get to the places that you want to get? Or if you don't know anyone, just reach out, write an email um, to the person. As I said, usually people are very open to these things. Like we, I personally really want to, I really want to show to other people uh, that it's possible, that it's mm-hmm. not, you know, like a very far career. If you want it, you can, you can do it. And there are ways to go there. There are ways to get scholarships. Um, there are many ways to get there. Reach out to people. Contact people by email or in person if you can, but don't be afraid to reach out and these things are going to open your doors. Like just by knowing people, people can recommend you there, there, there. And then when you see. Excellent advice. Reach out in anything, in anything. Don't be afraid to reach out to learn more. Yeah, like just an experience, like um, someone wrote me this year, like one girl from Portugal that I don't know. She just reached out to me saying that she found my name I don't know where, like on the website, maybe in the Gates Lab website or Twitter, she said. Um, and she wrote me asking about advice. What should I do? I'm about to finish my undergrad degree. And I don't know where to go next. Do you have any advice? And I gave her some suggestion about fellowships that were open at the time and never followed back. So I gave some suggestions, um, some names, and that's it. And then she wrote me back this week, actually, uh, thanking uh, that she wanted, she, saying that she really wanted to thank me because she got the fellowship that I had recommended to her. So she went to South Arabia, Saudi Arabia, to, for KAUST. It's a it's a big marine biology institute in Saudi Arabia, and she got the fellowship to go there for the summer program that I had suggested to her to apply to. Uh, and because of that, she got invited for her master's in Germany. So she was from Portugal. She went to Saudi Arabia for the fellowship. And right now she's in her first week of her master's in Germany. And she wanted to thank because she had reached out and she had no idea where to go. So I think, yes, reach out to people. People can give you suggestions, can open doors for you that you don't know that are available. Excellent. What a great illustrative story. That's so cool. <laughs> I love it when people reach out yeah. to me. So, and it's, I'm sure you get from people quite often, you know, yeah. how do you, how do I get where you are? So it's really cool. And most, for the most part, people want to help. So definitely mm-hmm. reach out y'all. All right. Final thing as we wrap up here, I always like to do a conservation ask for the audience, something that they can do from anywhere and it all ties back into the ocean. And you mentioned that you do have something. So I was thinking about what to say, and I know maybe many of you don't live by the ocean. So I thought about suggesting something that everybody could do, even if you don't live close to the ocean, but it's also going to impact corals. And this thing is we should try to decrease our consumption of single-use plastic. Everything that we buy, if you go to supermarket, everything, most of the things that we buy come on plastic. So just think that this plastic uses water, use it energy, use a lot of things to be built and once used, 
it's just going to go to trash. It's never going to be used again. And it's not going to be recycled. Um, and if it ends up slinking the trash, it's going to take many, even the biodegradable plastics take many, many years to biodegrade. So I think one thing, one very important step we can do is try to decrease our consumption of plastic. And this can be in many ways and many levels. So, for example, um, just trying to bring your own bag when you go shopping or buy reusable straws. I have mine and I really like mine. Or bring your own silverware if you're going to, you're going somewhere. Don't use the plastic ones, but bring your own. Or have a water bottle. I also have mine here. Uh, so there's a re- reusable one. You don't have to buy plastic water bottles. Um, so those are simple things you can do that can have a huge impact. So plastic in the ocean is like a big, big problem. Like here in Hawaii, there are some beaches that you go and you see a lot of plastic. And then sometimes you see like the big chunks of plastic, but you watch, but what you don't see, it's actually even worse is the microplastic because these big chunks of plastics are going to be breaking down because of the action of waves. They're going to become tiny tiny pieces of plastic that are going to be eaten by fish. So actually some researchers are finding that the fish that we eat has a lot of microplastic inside. So we're actually eating plastic. Uh, Also, some researchers are finding that corals are also eating plastic, this microplastic. Mm -hmm. So plastic is going everywhere. So sometimes when we think about plastic, we just think about the big chunks but these tiny ones are actually gone, going everywhere and they're not degrading. So decreasing the consumption of plastic, I think it's a very important thing we can all do. And you can start very small just by bringing your auto bottle. And then, then there are many, many other things you can do related to plastic. But like try to start small and stick to it and then increasing as you go. Great advice. You bring up a really good point with starting small. I think people get really excited and want to jump on the bandwagon and will be like, okay, I'll go zero waste. And sometimes it works out and amazing if you can do that. But if you just pick one thing and make it a habit and then pick one other thing and stick to them, that that just makes it much more sustainable for most people. Exactly, exactly. Like just stopping everything right away, it's going to be very hard. Right, like so, start small but stick to it. So, like the water bottle is something. A lot of people here in Hawaii have water bottles because it's very hot. So it's like a habit to just go everywhere with your own water bottle. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to buy a water bottle. Silverware, just have it in your purse. You can buy in Amazon. You can buy like very cheap packets. Like you can just have in your purse and just carry with you everywhere, wherever you go. That's a great ask. Thank you so much for bringing that up. And it's a great thing for people to kind of strive for. Mariana, this has been awesome. I feel like I have a ton more questions for you. We might have to have you back on. We can get into like the really nerdy science part of it. But anyway, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm also going to send my email if people want to reach out. If people want to keep discussing, just feel free to email me. Absolutely. Is that the best way to get a hold of you? Or would you prefer... I know you said you had Twitter, Instagram. Where can people find you? Best place. Yeah, I can also give you Twitter, like the Gates Lab web, website. Uh, I can give you all the links and then people can Excellent. dive into it. 
for all of the listeners, this will be available at marinebio.life backslash Mariana. And I'll put all the links to all the things and you can go down the rabbit hole and it's going to be awesome. Thank you so much again, Mariana. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, listeners. Mariana had a wonderful ask. No matter if you live in a cabin in a remote mountain range or if you live in a shack on the beach, your everyday actions have an impact on the ocean. One of the simplest ways to help our oceans is to reduce the amount of plastic you use, particularly single-use plastic. If you're not sure where to start or need specific examples of reusable items to reduce your impact, check out marinebio.life backslash resources. There we have a list of ocean-friendly items that fit any budget and lifestyle, from water bottles to reusable bags, even laundry and dish soap. I'll see you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.